reading is Psalm 6, which can be found on page 545. Psalm 6, beginning at verse 1. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways, but Lord, particularly in the way that you've given us emotions that we might feel, our Lord, that we might um, respond and react to what's around us, Lord, that we might be able, uh, Lord, to look at things and say that they're wrong or unjust or unfair, uh, Lord, or they're just hard and that we can, uh, Lord, feel that as much as we can feel that things are brilliant and great. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be Lord of our emotions uh, this evening as we think through this particular emotion of lament. Uh, Bless us, Lord, I pray, uh, that we might feel as you've designed us to, uh, Lord, and that we might do that in a way that honours and glorifies you. Amen. Amen. Uh, Do please keep that psalm open. Um, we're doing uh, Psalms of Emotion. I think this might be our last one now. We come to the, uh, the emotion of lament. Uh, the Bible's a deeply emotional book with lots of emotion in it. Uh, we are made as embodied beings that have emotions. Uh, in our culture, uh, we've got to a point now where really your feelings govern everything that you do. So the way that you decide what's right and wrong is whatever feels right to you. Uh, And so it's good and wise just to think through, actually, what do we do with our feelings? Uh, What do we do with our feelings? And that's especially true when we come to our feelings of grief and hurt um, and pain, because I think there's no other place where it's harder to do business with God, probably, no other type of emotion. I think, you know, with praise, I get it. Thanksgiving, I can do that. Uh, But when you come, when the bomb goes off in your life, or when that chronic suffering and pain, um, be it a physical thing or an emotional thing, that just persists, I find those are the times that really get in the way of my relationship with the Lord. And the place I notice that, interestingly, 
is it's one of the questions that I fear my friends asking me about Jesus. When they look at something like the Ukraine or Turkey and Syria, or they look at something in their life like their kid being diagnosed with a chronic disorder, and, and I fear them saying, where is God in that? Uh, and I fear that because I'm worried that God's kind of not big enough for it. But actually, um, I don't want to let my feelings uh, like captivate me there and keep those people from knowing Jesus and from me knowing Jesus. Actually, lament is a place where our feelings can, should take us to God. It's not a very British thing to do. We're much more stiff up a lip, aren't we? It's a little bit embarrassing to break down and cry. And actually, um, especially I think in a conservative evangelical, if, if you know what that word means, don't worry, in this kind of church where you know, emotional excesses are slightly frowned upon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what I want to, this one I think is a crucial one for us as a church family and as a, 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 as a, as a constituency. <laughs> Uh, and if you're here tonight and you're just thinking through Jesus maybe the first time, uh, you've got something going on in your life. This is a crucial one because what we see in Psalm 6 is that prayers of anguish are heard by Jesus. Uh, the aim is here is that we would come away knowing that to cry out to the Lord in anguish is to trust him. It's not an embarrassment. It's a good thing to cry out to the Lord in anguish. Because actually, what we see here uh, with uh, lament all the way through the Psalms is that that grief and that feeling of awfulness is never the destination. It's always a journey to trust. That's kind of what um, Andrew was saying earlier. You, you don't avoid or go round it. You go through the pain and suffering to trust. It's never a destination. It's something that takes on a journey to trust in God. And so the aim here is that we would see that, or why you want to listen is to see how you move from anguish to confidence in God. That might be a quick movement, it might be a very slow movement, but we're just going to see it here. Uh, and the, if you're young here tonight and you're slightly thinking, you know, I don't know, what have I really experienced? Or maybe you're somewhere here tonight, you're thinking, actually, I haven't got much going on in my life. Well, praise God for that. But you will know people all around you who will be in dire straits. And if you haven't experienced real suffering yet, you will. And we need to know what to do with it. Do we just put it on a shelf in a box? Uh, do we let it totally govern us so we just can't do anything and we're a puddle on the floor? What do we do with it? So that's the answer we've got here today. Uh, I think what we're going to see is that lament is never um, the, the destination. It's always a journey uh, that we move through complaint, uh, through appeal to God, to trust in God. And our emotions should never keep us just in grief and lament. Our emotions should never keep us there. But they should be part of what moves us to trust the Lord. So look with me uh, at uh, Psalm uh, chapter 6, which is a very extreme um, psalm of lament. There are, there are a handful of them in the in the book of Psalms, uh, which is like the sort of hymn book of uh, the people of God. And so you get the full register of different emotions throughout it. We've done thanks, we've done praise, we've done confidence. You could probably chuck in a couple of other types as well. But here is response to distress, which is uh, just a lament, to be grieving with God. 
Uh, I like the word lament because we don't use it, really. And it, uh, that slightly tells you that what we're seeing here is a little bit different from what the world might do because, as we said, it ends up in trusting the Lord. So we look at verses, uh, we, we see at the beginning it's for the director of music with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith. Don't worry if you've read that and you've got no idea what that means. No one really knows what those mean, but we do know it's a psalm of David, so the chosen king of Israel who had all sorts of difficult things in his life as well as very good things. And we find him here in verses 1 and 2 saying, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. Uh, What's the cause of his distress here? Well, in the Psalms, it's always three things. But here, and they're complex and they're intertwined. But the nature of what causes the suffering here is there's not really any clear answer to a specific thing. But we can see that what he's highlighting is actually something that he's done. So don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in 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 your wrath. So his distress is a kind of mix, isn't it, of... Uh, God's part of it, because he's the one doing the, the, um, uh, the rebuking. Uh, he's part of it, because actually part of his suffering comes from his own sinful heart, maybe how he's responded to it incorrectly, or maybe he's done something that's terrible. But then also we get at the end, don't we? There are these enemies in verse 10 that are lurking in the background. So his distress is complex, but the main thing he's picked out here. Is, uh, is this discipline, the, uh, the wrath of God. He doesn't dispute the rightness of God's anger, but he's feeling like there's way too much of it. It's disproportionate. See, his bones here, they're in agony. It sort of suggests cracking under the strain of God's wrath, like it's beyond all reasonable p- proportion. Uh, Psalms of lament often have shockingly vivid poetic language to help us feel the anguish of, uh, of, the, of the author. And that really does it, doesn't it? Like your bones are cracking under the stress. So great is that distress. In verse 2, that idea of being faint is a word that's used elsewhere for famines when people are dying. You know, the agony of, of, of the bones, uh, actually, um, that word, my bones are in agony, you could translate in the Hebrew as they're terrified. Do you, can you see, he's terrified right down to his roots as he stares death in the faith, face. It's a physical, isn't it? And a spiritual and an emotional. You see how they're all connected together. Now, some of us will know that kind of distress where things are so awful that actually it ruins our health as well as our emotional energy. It just, it's draining and spiritually as well. But look what he's doing here is he's telling God about it and he's telling God about it with bells on. Not even without, he's not actually even confessing anything specific, is he? He's just pouring out what it feels like and how awful this is. I'm reminded of uh, Hannah that we looked at in the morning service. You can go and listen to that that sermon about women of faith in 1 Samuel, um, where she pours her soul out to the point uh, she's praying to God and just pouring out her grief to the point that someone thinks she's drunk. Actually, she's not at all. She's in this place where she's just, this is too much, God. 
You see, this is the good thing about the Bible and about God, is there is no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God. They complain to God. They weep before God. The the Christian faith is not a faith that leads to a dry-eyed stoicism and a stiff upper lip, but a faith so robust that it wrestles with God. You see what he's doing here? Even though David's done something wrong, he's still wrestling with God and his experience of it. There's no stoic resignation here, no embarrassment at being overly emotional or worry about ruining the party or letting down the side. There's similarly, though, no doubt that God exists and no doubt that he is listening and no doubt that he's in control. So what we've got here is an emotional pursuit of God. Can you see that? Not an emotion that captures us and drives us away from God, but an emotion that takes you to God, even when you think like God's actually doing something that's unfair or too much. Even when God's abandonment of him or oppression of him might be right. He's driven to going to God. So expressing our emotions of grief, lament or unfairness or isolation or whatever it is that we feel, uh, it's a good thing... It's a good thing to have those moments when it drives us in this emotional pursuit of God. The expression of those emotions in complaint to God are very clear and obvious affirmation of a belief in his presence, aren't they? You know, you, you know, you know, you, I know that I'm the parent of my kid and that they believe that I'm their parent. When they hurt their knee and the first thing they do is they go running to mummy. You know, oh, great, it's gone to mum again. You, know, you think mum is the one that is really can deal with stuff. And so it is with us. Who we go running to or what we go running to is an expression, isn't it, of who we believe in, who we trust. Um, and that we are, uh, we are, he's interested in us and he's under his care. So there we go. So we see this, how long, O Lord, which is the complaint to God. And so I want to encourage us with our laments to complain to God about what's unfair and what's wrong, even if it is that you feel like you've done something sinful and you're under God's oppression for that. Complain to God about it. That's an expression of trust. And the second thing we see here is this return, O Lord, kind of idea in verses 5 to 8, where you get the appeal. So there's been this complaint, and now there's an appeal in verses 5 to 8. I love this. He says, or it's verse 4, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? Can you see what's going on there? It's an appeal. Turn back to David, he's saying. Turn back to me. Um, And that's not implying that God is forgetful uh, or that he's unaware, but it's a relational thing, isn't it? It's asking God to renew your concern for me uh, and, and act on behalf of me, please, God. Don't, 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 don't be sending me to my room, effectively, in child terms. Um, come back to me. So verse 4 is this appeal for rescue from God's wrath. And it's made first by pleading to God's character. Can you see that? What does he say? Save me because of your unfailing love. 
You see, that's such a refuge, isn't it, of being able to plead God's character when we're unable to plead our own character. Isn't that great? Because I can't say to God, God, come back to me because I'm such a great guy. Well, you could say that, but even as you say it out loud, it's awful, isn't it? But you can always say, God, come back to me because of your unfailing love. Because his love he's shown in thousands of years of history is unfailing. And he's shown that on the cross as he's risen again. Isn't that a great refuge? And that's where he goes to appeal to God. David is helpless before the wrath of God, isn't he? And only God can relent and save his life. And so he goes to God and his character for his appeal. And he also appeals not just to God's character, but to God's plans for all of creation. So in verse 5, he says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? You kind of think, oh, it's a good logical argument, isn't it? But actually what he's doing is he's appealing to God's plan, which is to redeem all of creation and have all of creation reconciled to him in Christ so that they might praise his name and the whole of creation know how wonderfully faithful and unfailing his love is. And so David's saying, look, come on, do your, do your plan with me. Forgive me. That's my appeal. What a refuge that is. Knowing that our escape from God's wrath and our escape from distress and grief is part of God's plan to display his glory to the world. It's not like he's not interested. He's absolutely interested in redeeming us from our distress and our grief and our lament because when he does that, it shows his glory. And that's why David appeals to him here. Don't don't let me die unforgiven, but forgive me so that we might... Do you see that? And then in verses 6 to 7, he appeals to God because simply David can't take it. This is, isn't this great? He just says, look, I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Return to me. Deliver me, Lord, because look at me. I'm an absolute mess. Literally, this line is uh, swimming in tears and melting his bed with them. I don't actually understand that, but in the Hebrew, it's actually your bed is melting with tears. Like the tears have suffused it, and it has gone from being solid to being liquid. There is that much tearing going on. It's the opposite of thanks and praise for deliverance, but it's poetic and stark emotional language to describe his total helplessness and the fact that he can't take it anymore. Isn't this such a brilliant refuge in our grief that if we know that the chosen king of God can't take it, then we don't have to take it. We don't just have to grin and bear up under it. We don't have to tough it out. We can't and we won't have to because God has to intervene and rescue us from his own wrath, from that distress, from that suffering. And that's what he does in Jesus And that's the brilliant thing, isn't it? Is we see the character of God, the plan of God, and our total helplessness in Jesus, don't we? That's what the character of God, that it's his unfailing love in us that he's so invested that in the God-glorifying rescue of sinners from hell that Jesus dies on the cross for us so that we can plead his character instead of our character before God's judgment seat, and so escape his wrath. Without that, there's nothing we can do. We are dead in our transgressions and sin. It's almost like David knew the gospel, isn't it? 
I appeal to your character, I appeal to your plans, and I know that I've got nothing. Do you see the appeal there? This is a psalm of extreme lament as well, because the problem is the totally inexplicable inaction of God. His allowing wrath to remain just seems to run contrary to his plans and his character. It's not linked to anything specific or proportionate. It, you know, and there's this extreme consequence the grave. And here, the word for the grave in verse, uh, where are we? In verse uh, at five is shoal, which is the Old Testament concept of hell. So that's what awaits David. And that's what will suffocate his praise of God. And the extremeness of that matches the extremeness of David's appeal, doesn't it? He's just embarrassing in his pleading and begging on the character and plan of God and his own helplessness. It's pathetic. This is a king for crying out loud. But he frankly and emotionally appeals to the Lord's pity. Can you see that? There's nothing of the self-sufficient. Pull yourself together. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Go and do enough uh, counselling such that you can sort yourself out. Counselling is excellent. It is brilliant. But when the end of it is simply that we need to improve ourselves without God on the case, that's not what's here, is it? This is just pour yourself out on God for him. Appeal to him to help you as you go through your counselling. Appeal to his character and his plan and your helplessness. The first prayer I ever prayed, uh, I might cry here, the first prayer I ever prayed was in the back of a car in Australia, aged about uh, six, uh, with my little sister having a fit um, on the, uh, in the night time, in the middle of nowhere, about three hours from a hospital, and my little sister, there's obviously something wrong with her when she was six or eight months old, and she was having a fit. My mum's a GP. My dad is a rock. You, I've never seen them unflustered. But I remember they were freaking out. And I remember sitting in the back seat of that car. And the first prayer I prayed was, God, I've, please do something. I've got there's nothing. I've got nothing. It's one of the most pitiful prayers I've ever prayed. But I should pray like that all the time. Because that's how David prays. It's an emotional plea. Have you done that yourself? Do you do that yourself? Have you heard, heard someone doing that and encouraged them to pray with uh, this appeal on God's character and plans and their own helplessness just in this pitiful way? But then we've got through the lament now and we end up in verses 9 to 11. And here there's a sudden switch, isn't there? Did you pick up on that? My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And then suddenly, away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. This is the bloke who's under God's wrath for being a sinner. But here is his trust in God. Here is his trust in God. If he's had the complaint and the appeal, here is his trust. That's how he's moving through it. There's so much that's unexplained in this psalm. Like, how do the enemies fit in here? What's the deal? Are they taking advantage of David's weakened state? I don't know. 
What's changed between verses 8 and 9, or 7 and, uh, 7 and 8? I, I, I don't know. Maybe there was an oracle from one of his uh, prophets or his mate Nathan, or, or maybe a personal word from God. But you know what? It doesn't really matter. Because what is absolutely clear here is David is certain that everything he's asked for in verses 1 to 5, God will do. Can you hear how he speaks of it as if it's already happened? Get away from me. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Can you hear that? So suddenly he's got this confidence just to shoo his enemies away from him. When a moment ago he didn't really have the emotional capacity to get up off his bed. It's very clear that David is certain that God has heard him repeated twice with accepted as well. He's got this trust in God uh, that as so often happens in Psalms of Lament. They end with trust and often with praise thrown in as well. And why is that? It is because of verse 9. The Lord has heard my weeping. He has heard my cry for mercy. He accepts my prayer. So the question is, with any suffering, can we trust God with our emotions of grief and lament and the suffering? Can we trust that he will hear them and act upon them? And that's what this psalm tells us, is yes, you can. In lament, I have to trust in my grief and my distress, in your grief and your distress, you have to trust someone that you can't control. That's God. Who doesn't always make sense to you. That's an infinite God. It's incredibly difficult. It's trust and faith. This psalm here, why this is happening to David, is unexplained. And the only, you know, the only answer that he gets to how long, O oh Lord, how many of you have cried that? The only answer he gets to how long, O oh Lord, is really not forever. Otherwise, it's totally unexplained why God let David get so close to death. It's incredibly difficult to trust someone where you don't get all the whys and you don't understand him totally. So can we trust David like David does? Psalms of Lament, uh, uh, Floy, Floyvisk, a bloke called Floyvisk, I just love that name. He says, Psalms of Lament take the bewildering situation uh, to God, whom they still believe and confess to be almighty, good, just, and rich, and steadfast in love. The psalmists do not resolve the tension, they just take it to God. That's trust and faith, isn't it? There's never a reason why... The important thing is, is you take it to God. Now Bonhoeffer, there are no, no theoretical answers in the book of Psalms to all these questions, as there are none in the New Testament to that question of why is this happening. The only real answer is Jesus Christ. The only real answer is Jesus Christ. Because instead of God giving us an answer to the why, he gives us Jesus he is the Davidic king who suffered the wrath of God like David here, but didn't dissolve in tears. He rose again. He conquered it. Jesus is the Davidic king who suffered every want and fear and every distress and brought it before God and said when he knew he was going to experience the most deep distress of all, which is your sin and mine for all eternity, and he said to God, take it from me, and then said in the next breath, yet not my will but yours. He's experienced every want and fear and distress. 
It's Jesus who cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never be forsaken, but forgiven. And so we are given a God who knows us as forgiven sinners. And there is now no suffering on earth which Christ does not know and will not be with you and will not be for you amongst it, even if it is just your own sin. And so we can say with Psalm 23, you are with me, even in the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you see how the fact that God has given us Psalm 6 and the Psalms of Lament means that he is expecting you and I to encounter deep, deep distress and pain in our lives. He knows that we will need these words. And God has shown us in David that he is waiting and ready and listening to hear our lament. And we want our emotions to be captivated by the beauty of Christ so that they would drive us to God in complaint, appeal and trust and then eventually thankfulness. The key thing is here is that we've got a God who not only knows our grief fully in Jesus but is Here's it. Uh, and that's, uh, proof, is, that's, proof of that is in David's life here, but also in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make this lament available to even you and I so that we can take our grief to God. God's given us Jesus to show that we can trust that he hears our lament and our distress. So trust Jesus with your life but trust Jesus with your tears. It was so wonderful to see that happening at Nigel's funeral. Nigel Gordon is an old standing member of Emmanuel, much, much loved, who knew the Lord all the days of his life. And he died recently and we had his funeral. And in this room and in the Boltby Hall was filled with people who didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. But there was much weeping. And with the weeping went a calling out to God, both in lament and also in praise. What a picture of lament and trust. So is your instinct to cry out with great emotion to the Lord in distress and to depend upon him and for that to be an act of dependence? Or rather self-dependently sort yourself out and deal with it on your own terms and in your own way? If that latter one is you, I'll come often like that, can I encourage you to know the strange joy of lament, that you would take it to God? And so maybe that's something for us to talk about afterwards. You know, what, what are you sad about and what do you want prayer for? Maybe it's a present one or a historic one or there's something that's ongoing. We can help one another to lament and to trust because this is given to God's people as a whole that we might do this together. It doesn't mean that we stand at the front of church and share everything, but it means that we might meet together and encourage each other just to pour our souls out to God, because that is an act, a beautiful and wonderful act of trusting in the Lord, uh, not just with our lives, but with our tears. Do you pray? Uh, Lord God, we thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, that you don't expect us to be enough. Uh, Lord, you don't expect us to be enough in terms of meeting your perfect mark of righteousness, of being perfect.
Lord, you came to die on the cross that we might have Christ's character for that. But Lord, nor do you expect us in this life to be strong enough to bear our sorrow and our grief. Our Lord, you expect us to be drenching our pillows with tears. You expect us, Lord, to be totally bewildered by what you throw at us, even when it might be rooted in what we ourselves have done, let alone what we experience in the world. I thank you that you're a God who gives us words to say to you so that we might, even in our tears, express our trust in you. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to do that so that in our very great pits of despair, you might be right there with us. Uh, Lord, we might have one hand on the rung to climbing out uh, because we know that you hear our weeping. You've heard our cry for mercy. And Lord, you accept our prayers in Christ. Amen.